1: In the words of the Trade-Offs team, there are no easy solutions for a troubled healthcare system, just Trade-Offs. You can find Trade-Offs wherever you listen to your podcasts.
2: Hello and welcome to The Naked Scientist with me, Georgia Mills, and with Chris Smith. This week,
1: as World Blood Day approaches, we delve into the history of bloodletting, explore the process of blood donation, and find out about new techniques to make blood that anyone can use safely.
2: Plus, the science behind the headlines, including a new test to reveal every virus infection you've ever had. The Large Hadron Collider fires up again after a two-year shutdown and a new weapon in the fight against Ebola.
1: The Naked Scientists podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk. The world's biggest particle accelerator, the Large Hadron Collider, has been successfully restarted this week after a two-year maintenance shutdown. Now it's back to smashing together protons, which are the positive particles that sit at the centres of atoms, and this is going to help scientists to glimpse what the universe is made of, we hope. Greg Jackson went to CERN to meet the LHC's head of operations, Mike Lamont.
3: The LHC is 27 kilometres in circumference, and it's divided into eight sectors, And the first stage is to actually cool the magnets down. So most of the magnets in the LHC are superconducting. They're cooled to 1.9 Kelvin. Pretty cold? Uh, Chilly, chilly. Yeah, this this is colder than outer space. And once the whole sector is cold, then we can start putting current into the magnets and making sure that the magnets behave properly.
4: And then what's involved after that?
3: Our main magnets are the dipoles, These are the big guys which are bending and focusing the beams, and these all have to be tested. The whole process for the whole machine lasted about six months to check out all the magnetic circuits. So this is a huge, hundreds of thousands of tests. So once that's done over the full 27 kilometres, then we're in the situation where we think we start taking beam.
4: And when you say take beam, what do you mean?
3: The protons come in bunches, so we group the protons together A bunch is about 30 centimetres long, um, typically about a millimetre in transverse dimension, so you think about a long, thin worm. And we're going to put 100 billion protons into each bunch and then spread out a lot of bunches around most of the LHC circumference, and that's what we call the beam.
4: And you're accelerating these round, and then I suppose you choose exactly where they collide. How many protons are actually colliding every single rotation?
3: So the total number of protons in the beam is, is, is astronomical. I mean, we're talking something like two ten to the fourteen. The number of collisions that we generate a second is the order of six hundred million, which is actually quite a small proportion of the total number of protons circulating.
4: I don't know, it sounds like a pretty big number to me. How can you keep track of all of the?
3: Well, we uh, we got some rather cute beam instrumentation which measure the number of protons we have in the beam and where they're all going. We have to be very, very careful about not losing these guys because they have very high energy and they can damage the magnets. So we have to be very careful about uh, beam wrangling, if you like, and keeping control of all these protons. Tough job. Somebody's got to do it, yeah.
4: <laughs> so now that, now that we're ready to go, we're going to be seeing the first few experiments in the next coming days. What can we expect for scientists to be looking out for in the next run?
3: So the key thing about this run, run two we're starting now, is we can now take the protons to a higher energy so rather than four TEV at the end of run two, we're now going to six and a half TEV. TEV is, is what we call a, t- a terror electron volt. On a terrestrial scale, this is about the same as a housefly flying at a couple of miles an hour. A
4: house flying?
3: A house fly.
4: Oh, a house <laughs> Sorry.
3: <laughs> I was to imagine no, uh, uh, OK, we've we we got strange <laughs> analogies, but we're not, uh, you know... <laughs> not a flying house, a house fly. <laughs>
4: so a house fly flying at two miles an hour is the same as one. Like this,
3: TV. Like, you know the exact numbers escape me, but it's at that order. So on a terrestrial scale, this is not a huge amount of energy. But what we're doing is we're, we're giving that energy to a, a minusculely tiny particle, the proton, on a particle physics scale. This really is a lot of energy, and this is opening up new territory for the physicists. One of the big hopes is for signs of something called supersymmetry which would open up a completely new uh, world of uh, high-energy physics if it's there. The interesting thing here is we're probing the way the universe is is structured. If the universe has chosen not to use supersymmetry as a a solution to its problems, then it's not there, and that is a fact that we will have to face, and uh, you don't have to develop other theories to explain things like dark matter.
2: CERN's Mike Lamont, speaking with Greer Jackson.
1: And sticking with particle physics and the Higgs boson, possibly owing to its gravity, what could be a more fitting tribute to the 2012 Nobel Prize-winning discovery of the Higgs than a musical composition created by the collider itself? (laughs) Dominico Vicinanza heads the electronics and sound engineering research group at Anglia Ruskin University. He's used a process called data sonification to turn the measurements from the experiments that uncovered the Higgs into this music. It's beautiful. How do you do this? What's the secret? Thank you
5: very much. Well, what we are listening to is the result of a process called data sonification. And data sonification is all about making measurements into something audible. So if you like, it's like using notes and melodies to represent data instead of using conventional points and lines.
1: Which data
5: did you use? So in this case, we use energy measurements uh, that were taken by physicists in 2012. So what we are listening to is the is the distribution of the energy going from really low to high energies when the when the Higgs was actually discovered.
1: I see. So when you see a collision happen, those recordings that were made in the detectors at CERN, they've given you that data, and you've done something to it to turn it into a tune.
5: Exactly. What we did to the to the measurements was mapping them was basically associating to each single measurement in each single number a music note using an algorithm so a set of rules that are actually linking the data
1: to to the music
5: notes and giving a melody
1: there's only a small number of notes but the energy levels must have been a continuous variable it must have been over a huge range so how do you turn something with many 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 possible energies into a discrete number of musical notes
5: so what we did was actually using a mapping process that was compressing the range of, uh, of the energy variation to a certain number of octaves in music terms. So we had an orchestra, so we had instruments able to, to play really low notes like double basses to instruments able to play really high pitch notes like like flutes and piccolos. And so we decided beforehand what was our range or energy range in, in sonic terms in, in some way, and we did the mapping.
1: You've got a real kind of orchestrated piece here, though. It's not just individual discrete notes. So how did you then add the extra layers of orchestration? Did you apply one rule for one set of instrumentation, then another set of rules for another, and then get something that sounds good? That that was indeed
5: a possibility. So what I preferred to do was take the energy measurements and create one single long melody, a really long one. And then I was listening to it, and I was extracting pieces of this long melody that was sounding particularly nice or was particularly suitable for, for an orchestration. And then I as a composer, what I liked to do was actually using the right pieces for the right instruments. So and I actually started working, trying to trying to imagine how the how the these little pieces could layer on top of each other. And I worked on my orchestration to create to tell a story. And the story I wanted to tell was how the the discovery happens. So working from low energy, low frequencies, double basses and cellos at the beginning, and having it building up with woodwinds and with horns, creating so sustaining the melody, and finally the, the big discovery.
1: Could you use the same technique to do other data? Presumably you could. Indeed. So data sonification is a really, really general technique. So we can
5: actually use it to represent what, whatever we like. For example, I was recently involved in a research actually using data sonification to help doctors to discriminate between healthy and potentially dangerous cells in uh, in, in cancer. So we're actually using sound to discriminate between healthy and unhealthy situations.
1: Where previously they would look down a microscope and try to discriminate visually, you would what, have a computer read a slide and translate what it's seeing, in inverted commas, into sounds, and then the doctors are using their ears to discriminate rather than exclusively their eyes. Exactly. And the reason why we are doing that
5: is because we believe that that ears can, can be much better than eyes in, uh, in discriminating anomalies and discovered patterns. So in some sense the so the earring sense is, is a neglected one, so we are we are so much relying today in looking at graphs and looking at visual representation of, of of information that we we forgot that we can actually use other sensors and earring is is one of the best ones. We have one of the probably most complex way of detecting patterns
1: embedded in our in our ears and we are not using it I suppose this is the audio equivalent of creating a graph, if I've got a complex series of numbers and I want to represent them in the way that makes them easier to interpret and to show what the trend is, I draw a graph. You're doing the same thing with music for big data sets. Exactly. And what we are hoping to do is actually using the natural capability of,
5: of our ears in detect trends and patterns and anomalies. So one example I really like is, is when, we, when we think about a graph and we think about lots of points in a graph... Sometimes it's really, really difficult to identify one misplaced point in a graph. And if we, we think about a melody which has a lot of notes and really complex, it's quite easy actually to spot a wrong misplaced note in a, in a, in, in a melody. And that's all because we are so good in detecting anomalies and patterns using our ears.
1: Domenico Vicenanza from Anglia Ruskin University. There are no wrong notes in your composition. It's beautiful. And here's a little bit more to listen to. You can catch the rest on the Naked Scientist website. We'll put a link there to it.
2: You're listening to The Naked Scientist with me, Georgia Mills, and with Chris Smith. Still to come, how scientists are genetically tracking the Ebola virus across Africa, new guidelines on how much we should be standing up at work, and the blood transfusion that's compatible with everyone. But first, your health history is literally about to go viral. This is because US researchers have developed a new test which detects every virus infection you have ever contracted. And this is by using just one drop of your blood.
1: Indeed, humans can succumb to tens or even hundreds of virus infections over a lifetime and although the majority are cleared by the immune system, certain combinations of infections early in life might alter your chances of developing other diseases later, like asthma, diabetes or cancer. Finding out whether you've had them or not, though, has always been the tricky part. So the ability to screen for every virus infection you have ever had could make a massive impact on our ability to diagnose, treat and even predict
0: disease. Stephen Elledge. People are infected with viruses all the time. Your immune system is what keeps you healthy and keeps the virus from killing you. And every time you get infected with the virus, it leaves an indelible mark on your immune system, a memory. And we were interested in trying to measure this memory. The way that we were doing it is that your body makes antibodies to viruses. We wanted to take antibodies out of people's blood and develop a method that would allow us to determine which viruses those antibodies recognize and that will tell us what viruses you've been infected with throughout your life and not only did we want to be able to do that but we wanted to do it for all viruses at one time so we could look at over a thousand human viruses in one experiment and tell you which ones you'd been infected with because your body continues to make antibodies to a virus, even after the virus is gone.
1: How do you assemble such a massive repertoire of tests to pick up all of those different antibodies that, say, I will have made and assembled during my 40 years so far of interacting with the microbial world?
0: Recently, it's become possible to make various pieces of viral DNA that encode the proteins the virus needs to grow in people. And it's these proteins that your antibodies detect. Since we were able to take the DNA from the sequences of all known viruses, we could make bits of each protein for each virus. And we could display that in a way that we could figure out which bits your antibodies recognize.
1: How do you tell which antibodies are reacting with which bit of which virus?
0: We take advantage of something called a bacteriophage, which is a virus for bacteria. And we can insert any piece of DNA we want into those viruses. So we could, for example, insert a tiny bit of of human virus DNA into the bacteriophage. And the bacteriophage builds a little house that encapsulates its own DNA. And the proteins on the outside of the house, we can have our little bit of viral protein fused to, so it decorates the house. Then an antibody can recognize that, and we have special magnetic beads that will then purify the antibodies away and anything they touched and if they happen to touch a particular house it will bring with it its own DNA and then we can just sequence the DNA that all sounds very complicated but in fact it's really simple
1: I get it so because these individual little bacteriophages these uh, viruses that prey on bacteria. Because you are decorating each of those to have a specific marker corresponding to an antibody, which I have made when I responded to a certain virus in the past. Any time those antibodies bind to one of those bacteriophages, because the genetic message in the bacteriophage is unique to that particular one, you can easily pull it out and say, "Ah, oh, we know which antibody it was that that bound onto you," and we can therefore work out which antibody Chris has got in his bloodstream.
0: That's exactly correct, and you said it much better than even I can.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I was lucky, wasn't I? So what are the implications of this then, Stephen? It's all very well to say, well, you can make these incredible deductions about what has happened to me as I've gone through life and interacted with what must amount to thousands of virus infections. But why is this useful?
0: Well, this is useful because you can now look at all viruses at one time instead of one at a time, which is what people do now they have to guess you might have been infected with the virus and say, okay, check for that one. And a lot of viruses, HIV, for example, or hepatitis C, can go unnoticed for a long time. Unless someone suspects you've been infected with one of those, they won't even look for it. And you can imagine that if there's a simple test that eventually makes it into the clinic that looks at all viruses at once, it could be part of a normal yearly visit to the doctor. We only need a drop of blood, a pinprick will do it then you could have all of your viruses examined at that time. And if you happen to have something that's not good, you can get treatment for it. And um, there are millions of people right now who uh, are chronically infected with hepatitis C and do not even know it.
1: But it doesn't tell me anything about when in my life what age I was when I caught whatever infection. Because I suppose if one wants to ask, well, when did you have infection X? Because we're interested in how time relates to different infections occurring at different ages, because the impact on your health could be different at different ages. can't it? it doesn't really give us any insight into that, does it?
0: No, it could be two weeks ago, it could be two years ago, it could be 10 years ago. But whenever you find it, you can treat it.
2: Stephen Elledge, he published that work this week in the journal Science. Now, are you sitting comfortably? Well, if so, you might want to stand up because according to many recent headlines, the sedentary lifestyle is harming your health. Now, some businesses are even installing standing desks and scheduling walking meetings to try and combat the risk. But what are the facts? John Buckley from Chester University has been looking at the evidence.
6: Well, most people spend 70% of their waking hours actually sat down. So a group of us from around the world have collected up information along with some of the larger observational studies that um, they've um, taken on people who have had standing jobs. So for example, in Canada, the Canada Fitness Survey looked at people's different occupations and followed them for a number of years, 13 years in fact, and looked at those occupations where people are predominantly sitting and people are predominantly standing and showing a a clear link that as people stood more in their day, they had fewer instances of early death or heart disease, diabetes, and some cancers.
2: Why is sitting down so bad for you?
6: Well, you're not using your muscles at all, really. As soon as you engage your muscles, then your body obviously has a, a, a small physiological challenge to maintain that posture, so as soon as you're doing a little bit much work, everything is elevated. The whole system, slight breathing, slight heart, metabolism is raised. And all those factors are just working the system a little bit all the time, making sure your blood sugars are operating at the right level, taking up little bits of fat, and a little bit of cholesterol in very small amounts. But if you extend that over a long period of time, we're thinking that that is probably why these things are related to better health outcomes, because the body is designed to be active and moving.
2: I am one of these people who spends a huge amount of time sitting down at my computer. What should I be doing?
6: The ultimate option is you get a sit-stand desk so that you could raise your whole desk up and you could stand and work at it for a number of hours, three, four hours in a day, but you don't have to do it all at once. If um, you haven't made that investment, then to make sure that throughout the day, you are actually getting up on your feet for you know at least five minutes, 10 minutes at a time. And that could be like what we're doing now, where we're having a discussion on the telephone um, and you're recording this, so you're not having to write anything down. So there isn't any reason why we can't be having this meeting standing up.
2: So should I stand up? Yes. Okay, I'm going to raise the microphone up and I'm going to stand up. And now I'm less likely to get um, cardiovascular problems. Well, if you
6: did this for the next 20 minutes, three or four times in the day, because I'm sure you have opportunities during the day where you've got these blocks of 20 minutes where you can actually do this.
2: How much time in total and how often should we be trying to stand up?
7: Well,
6: that's the million dollar question with all of this, but looking at the current evidence, it looks like people need to do two or more hours per day if you're an office worker um, and the and the benefits really show um, a lot of difference when if people are doing um, four or more hours per day.
2: That's a huge amount of time. i'm I'm sure many people will be thinking this just simply isn't feasible for me.
6: Uh, it depends how you achieve it. See, we're going to have this discussion for 20 minutes. How many of these discussions do you have in a day?
2: <laughs> um, I'm on the phone quite a lot.
6: Okay, so why can't you spend most of the time you could walk around even by having those, you know, that discussion on the phone?
2: Is just standing up enough or do you have to move around as well?
6: The data that we have from people who are just doing sort of standing up interventions, it looks like they're having to do sort of more than five minutes At a time
2: earlier, you mentioned standing desks. Is there any evidence that these are really good for you and can improve your health?
6: Yes, we we're seeing amazing changes to to people's energy expenditure, to their changes in blood glucose, um, and even um, starting to see changes in people's um, productivity and their alertness as well.
2: John Buckley from Chester University. Now, let's talk about Ebola,
1: because uh, although most of the headlines at the moment are dwelling on what FIFA have or haven't been up to, the Ebola crisis that dominated the news much of last year hasn't actually ended, and there are still cases being declared. Now, scientists have a new weapon to break the so-called transmission chain of Ebola, and that is a DNA sequencer. Cambridge virologist Ian Goodfellow has been in Sierra Leone, where he's installed this machine... In a tent, and it's reading the genetic information of viruses that are recovered from victims, which is enabling scientists and the government locally to act much more effectively and decisively. The first publicly available data came off the machine just this week. Previously, getting samples to analyse like this was nearly impossible.
7: You have to get this material out of the country, and you have two options. One is you take the actual infectious material out, which has real challenges because the commercial flights won't carry it, or you take the genetic material out. And that has its other challenges because it, you need to be confident that you're inactivating the material. So just the practicalities of getting the samples from that have come out of the patients and physically getting them out of the country, getting permissions, it means that uh, the whole process is slowed down. So how did you seek to address this? The aim was really to try and put a a machine that would allow us to determine the genetic sequence of these viruses in a treatment centre in McKennie. This is in Bombali district in Sierra Leone, in what really can only be described as a rather unconventional environment.
1: Well, just describe first of all, what do these machines that read genetic information look like?
7: It's probably the size of a... Reasonable size television, big box effectively, it just looks like a box with a whole bunch of tubes coming out of it. The machine we chose, we selected for a very specific reason, and that was because we felt we could operate it in that environment. We needed something that's going to be able to cope with the temperature, cope with the humidity, cope with the dust, um, the insects that are crawling around the inside of the tent And the
1: data is now coming off of the machine, is it? You're getting sequence now from this machine.
7: We are getting sequences. Uh, One of the big problems we faced is getting the data out. Here in the UK, I have a super fast broadband, which means I can send large files across from here, anywhere in the world, very, very quickly. In Sierra Leone, we're trying to move somewhere in the region of five gigabytes of data per run of the machine. And we're doing this on a Wi-Fi dongle. So this is slower than the internet connection you will get from a mobile phone.
1: But critically, this means that now you're literally testing the genetic sequence of Ebola that is infecting people. And you can therefore marry up what the outcome was for that person, where they'd come from in the country, who they'd had contact with, and perhaps whether or not those viruses spread. And I, I presume you can begin to learn something about how the viruses behave based on their genetic information and how fast they're changing and so on?
7: The only way to be able to break transmission chains is if you know how that transmission chain is operating. And there's clear evidence from the sequences we've released already that there's numerous viruses coming in from numerous examples of infected individuals getting viruses from Guinea. So we're finding... Viruses in Sierra Leone have actually come from Guinea. And this is despite the border being closed. Officially that border is closed and there should be no movement of individuals across the border. But they're very porous borders and they're difficult to police. So so this gives you an indication that there is multiple incursions of Guinean viruses into Sierra Leone. And this is something we need to be aware of. And there are things that can be done on the ground with that information. So by
1: reading the genetic information, you're actually learning quite a bit about what's happening politically or geographically in a country as well, aren't you?
7: We can, yeah, absolutely. And you can see, you know, our data would indicate that there's at least 12 tra- independent transmission chains which are operating. Now, actually, the government have done a fantastic job and many of those transmission chains, we think, are stopped. But if we see new cases appearing anywhere in the country... We have a system set up now where they will, the laboratory will phone the sequencing facility and we will go and collect that sample within 24 hours and sequence it. So our plan is to make the sequences publicly available as fast as possible. And we feel that it's important that this information is freely distributed to anyone who wants to see it and who anyone who can analyse it. Because only by really opening up that data can you draw on the wealth of knowledge of people who who are not able to actually go in-country to do that sort of analysis, we can pr- provide them that data and they can use their expertise to analyse it. That analysis is then fed back to the public health people on the ground.
1: Is this the first time, to your knowledge, that somebody has put a sequencer that reads genetic data into a tent in an African country, not just for Ebola, but
7: for anything, really, and, and really broken this bottleneck like this? I would... Hesitate to say that we're the first to do this. I'm not aware myself of anybody else with a sequencer that is on the ground. One thing we've learned from this outbreak, it's taken us five months to get to this point, and that's too slow. We need the ability to have this equipment ready to be deployed into an outbreak situation. It needs to be there as soon as these sorts of outbreaks occur. It needs to be on the ground. We need to have people ready and trained to be able to get the data analysed. And made available to the public health authorities.
2: Thank you. That was Ian Goodfellow.
4: Hello, Naked Scientists. Greyer here.
8: And Tom too. We're back to remind you about our survey. As you may know, we're going to be changing a few things at the Naked Scientists and want to know what you think.
4: We've had a great response so far. Thank you to the 200 people who've taken five minutes to give us the download. But we need more. Our target is 500. So please stop what you're doing and head to thenakedscientist.com slash survey.
1: There are some Amazon vouchers up for grabs. We'll be pulling names out of a hat in mid-June. Good luck and in the meantime, happy typing. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with me, Chris Smith, and also with Georgia Mills. If you'd like to get in touch with the programme, you can email chris at thenakedscientist.com. You can find us on Facebook or you can follow us on Twitter. It's at Naked Scientists.
2: Moving on to our main topic, the 14th of June marks World Blood Day. So this week we're putting the process of blood donation under the microscope. In the UK, with a population of about 65 million, the NHS Blood and Transport Service collects around 2 million blood donations every year, which is a good job considering that our hospitals need about 8,000 units, a unit being roughly one pint, every single day just to meet demand.
1: But before blood transfusion got going and the important role of the blood system was actually appreciated, doctors were much more fond of taking the stuff out of people, and they had some pretty ingenious implements for doing just that. Heather Douglas went to the Wellcome Collection in London, where they have some of them, to meet science and medicine historian Richard Barnett.
9: We're here in front of three objects which point towards one of the most widely used medical therapies in history, which is bleeding. This is a medicine which is based on the idea of balance and the balance of four humours.
4: The
10: idea of humours dates right back to the ancient Greeks. The theory goes that the body had these four disgusting-sounding liquids, black bile, yellow bile, phlegm, and, of course, blood, and that to keep healthy, they had to be in balance.
9: Now, within this system, blood has a particular function. Blood is the nutritive humour. The idea is that blood is made in the liver and then sent out around the body and it carries food, essentially, and disease in this model is imbalance. You can have too much of a humour or too little of a humour. Now, if you have too much of a humour, the doctor's job is to get rid of it, and this is where bloodletting comes in.
10: Bloodletting wasn't the only way to balance the body, but it was an easy and popular treatment because everybody bleeds. It was so popular that implements called scarificators were specially designed to get blood flowing. We took a look at some particularly gory ones. There's one that's just the metal box with blades sticking out.
9: Yeah, it's basically spring-loaded. It's a bit like a Flintlock pistol. You would sort of pull back a hammer, press it against the skin and press a trigger and, and blades or steel blades would come shooting out into the skin. Oh,
10: that sounds horrible.
9: The, the other one, as you can see, is rather like a razor crossed with a lawnmower and you sort of, again, run, run it along the skin and it would open up the skin and allow you to bleed.
10: It all sounds quite horrible to me. <laughs> what diseases would they prescribe bloodletting for?
9: Pretty much anything. You would prescribe it for diseases where there was an excess of blood. And if you have too much blood, you get overheated, feverish, you get overexcited. So letting out blood was a way to sort of calm Sandy down. And of course, if you lose three or four pints of blood, physiologically, you get calmer to the point of unconsciousness.
10: How did we come away from this idea of blood coming from the liver and begin understanding blood?
9: It's not until the end of the 18th century that ideas about therapeutic bloodletting really start to change and that's with the, the revolution of medicine called Paris medicine. Doctors start thinking more surgical. They start thinking about the fine level structure and the detailed anatomy of the human body. And they start also to collect data on patients. And one of the things that becomes very clear from this data is that therapeutic bloodletting has no effect whatsoever. And this is where we, you start to get the idea of transfusion
10: if you needed blood they'd stick a needle in my arm with a tube and stick the needle in your arm and hope it flowed the right way? Well exactly
9: you had you had as with plumbing you always had to be able to connect the pipes the right way round. but yes absolutely a very, a very simple and a very effective fare especially on battlefields.
10: But they didn't start directly with human to human transfusions did they?
9: Well, there was a long history of experimental transfusion, looking back to the old classical idea of your humours determining your character. So the idea was if you took blood out of a kind of angry, vicious dog and put it into a sheep and vice versa, you might get an angry, vicious sheep and a rather calmer, sheep-like dog.
10: (laughs) And did did they apply that to people as well?
9: There were some experiments with transfusing blood into criminals to try and sort of calm criminals. But the problem that all of these early transfusions faced was that very, very rarely they'd work and... There was really no sense of why this was happening until the work of Karl Landsteiner, who elucidates the blood groups.
10: So he was the one who discovered blood types?
9: Yes, his work is part of a movement to try and understand the immune system and then the other functions of blood as well.
10: Once blood groups were discovered, it was recommended that people were tested before transfusion, which still happens today. But to start with, there was a problem of actually storing blood...
9: And this becomes a, a real problem a few years after Landsteiner's work with the outbreak of the First World War. Suddenly, blood loss becomes a problem affecting all of the large European armies. And it's discovered during the First World War, I think quite by chance, that mixing some sodium citrates into the blood stops it from clotting. So you can start to store blood, you can start to build up blood banks... In 1939, at the outbreak of the Second World War here in Britain, you get blood banks set up in London, and the Blood Transfusion Service proves its worth during the Blitz.
10: So that was the real start of donation, and people at home would go along and give their blood?
9: Yes, this is where scientific development starts to mesh with cultural ideas as well. Here in Britain, ever since the 30s and the 40s, we've had this idea that blood transfusion is a kind of civic duty. It's something you can do for society with the idea that if and when you need it, somebody else will be there to do it for you.
2: Richard Barnett at the Wellcome Collection in London, speaking there with Heather Douglas.
9: Now what
1: physically is blood and how do doctors collect and use it? Well, Georgia accompanied a blood specialist or haematologist, Jacob Grinfeld, to the Cambridge Blood Donation Centre to find out.
2: Right now, blood is coursing through your veins and arteries. It's transferring oxygen to your tissues and organs and helping you to fight off infections. Your body is constantly replenishing your blood, but due to illness and accidents, around 25% of us will need a top-up at some point in our lives. And for this, we need someone else to donate theirs. To find out more about blood donation and to try and perform my social duty, I took a visit to Cambridge Donor Centre, There, I met haematologist Jacob Grinfeld, who told me a little bit more about what it was that people were giving away.
8: Broadly speaking, blood has four main constituents. There's three different sorts of cells, and then there's the plasma, which is the fluid that they swim in. Red blood cells give blood its red colour, and they contain haemoglobin, which carries oxygen throughout the body. There's various sorts of white blood cells, but effectively their job is to fight infection. And platelets are tiny cells that are involved in clotting the blood. The plasma transports lots and lots of different proteins, sugars, nutrients, and also carbon dioxide.
2: Something you hear people say a lot about blood is they've got a specific blood type. What does this mean?
8: What people are generally referring to are the ABO blood groups, which refer to proteins on the surface of the red blood cells. There's two main proteins there. There's A proteins and B proteins. So you can either have all A's or all Bs, a combination of the two, which gives you AB, or you can have neither, which means you have O blood.
2: So where does your blood type affect who you can and can't give your blood to?
8: Everyone develops antibodies to the A and B groups. If you don't have either of them, then you have antibodies to both A and B. And if you lack A or B, then you have antibodies to that specific group. And this is important because if you give blood to someone who has antibodies against that blood, they immediately have a very dramatic reaction to that.
2: These proteins on the blood cells act as signposts. If the blood has a signpost that isn't recognised, things called antibodies go on the offensive, much the same way they would if a virus had invaded the bloodstream.
8: So what this means is group O blood is the best to give because it doesn't have any A or B proteins on the surface, so you can give it to anybody, which is why it's very important for hospitals to have a stock of O-negative blood. So in emergency situations when you don't know what Blood group a patient is, you're pretty much guaranteed that you can give them O negative blood.
2: At the start of each donation, you fill out a health check and then get the iron levels in your blood checked. Fire a simple finger prick test. If there's enough iron in your blood, it sinks to the bottom of a small test tube. Iron is for it to start sinking. We want it to sink. We do. Yeah. Oh, we'll no, start Oh it's not to sinking. Sink. And it hasn't, unfortunately. So it's just gone the turn gone right back up to. The... As you heard, I failed that test, but my producer Heather passed with flying colours, so I joined her in the donation hall.
10: Ready. It's going in. It's going to go in now. It's
2: just like a little pinch. So I can see they've got this little blunt bag. Is this your blood? I hope so. <laughs> it looks like there's already a liquid in the bag. What is this?
8: that's citrate which is an anticoagulant
2: why is this important
8: so that you can get the blood back out of the bag and it's not all clumped in a in a lump so how are you feeling heather
10: yeah fine is this chair is really comfortable
2: each donation takes under 15 minutes with some people being done in four but whatever the time when you're done there is a reward Heather, so you're having your celebratory biscuit how are you doing Really good. This biscuit's really nice. I wasn't allowed to give, so I don't think I'm allowed one of these biscuits. (laughs) I asked and they said it's fine. Oh, brilliant. I'm cheating the system. (laughs) While we ate our biscuits, some of them not quite earned, we met first time donor Anna. How did it go? Yeah, it was fine. I was really worried about the actual giving blood bit, but then that bit was easy and all the nurses were really, really friendly. And yeah. Would you do it again? Yeah, I feel really proud of myself. Like I've achieved something today. (laughs) Heather and Anna were just two of the donors there last week, but I wanted to know what their blood will be used for.
8: When we take the blood, we actually break it down into its components so we can get from it red cells, platelets and proteins from the plasma. We use red cells for patients who have lost blood or can't make enough blood themselves. Similarly, we can give platelets for patients who have low platelet counts and therefore have problems with blood clotting. And also we use... Plasma, which contains a lot of clotting proteins as well, to correct problems with clotting.
2: Can blood be used if someone has, say, an accident on the road?
8: Yes, so that's obviously a source where blood will be in demand. People have lost a lot of blood from accidents. And as I mentioned before, that's where it's important to have a stock of O-negative blood.
2: But it's not just the rare O-negative blood types that doctors are on the hunt for.
8: In particular, in Addenbrookes, we have a lot of cancer patients and also do a lot of complex surgery, including multi-organ transplants so there's a high demand for a range of different blood products currently only four percent of the eligible donor population in the uk are actually giving blood so we're always on the lookout for more new donors
2: hopefully that will be next time. I will donate in the future. I've been given a little pamphlet. I'm going to eat spinach and kale and uh, three months time I'm going to give it another go.
1: I thought you were going to say some iron supplements.
2: I think there's a lot of iron in in spinach, I was told.
1: But is it available? Because that's the point, isn't it? Lots of foods have got lots of iron in them but it's not in a form that you can readily absorb.
2: Uh, I see. Apparently as well, cups of tea inhibit your um, ability to absorb iron which I think might have been my problem. I overdose on tea daily. See, Um, orange
1: juice puts iron into a form which is efficiently absorbed. So drinking a glass of orange juice with your spinach or whatever your your (laughs) source of iron is, your black pudding, whatever you're going to eat, this increases the uptake in the gut so that's the best way to do it actually so up your vitamin c intake because it keeps it in the form of the unoxidized state it means it can be better absorbed
2: a big thank you to jacob grinfeld and everyone at the cambridge donor center
1: you're listening to the naked scientists with me chris smith and also with georgia mills if you have any questions or comments you can tweet at naked scientists or find us on facebook the email address chris at
2: In an emergency situation, when a blood transfusion can mean the difference between life and death, there might not be enough time to test a patient's blood type. Under circumstances like these, the so-called universal donor blood type, or group O negative, that can safely be given to everyone, is what's needed. But it's in short supply. Only about 7% of the population have this blood type. Now, scientists at the University of British Columbia are tackling this problem they're developing a way to turn blood of any type into the equivalent of group O negative by stripping off the blood group markers or antigens from the outsides of the blood cells, as David Kwan explained to Chris.
11: The cells in your body, including blood cells, all display certain markers on their surfaces. These, are, these could be proteins or carbohydrates, anything that kind of identifies the cell to other cells in the body. The immune system It's able to recognize molecules on the surface of the body's own cells, but if you introduce other molecules, then the immune system will potentially attack these. And this is the problem with transfusing blood of different types.
1: And your strategy is to say, well, if we can remove those markers from the surfaces of the cells we want to transfuse, then the immune system would not have anything to recognize, and therefore it shouldn't react. Precisely. So how on earth can you remove those markers from the surfaces of cells?
11: We want to use enzymes, which are like molecular scissors, to cut off the antigen molecules from the surface of blood cells. Now this idea has been around for some years, but the problem has been that the enzymes available have not been very efficient. So what we wanted to do was to engineer these enzymes to better do the job.
1: Do these enzymes exist in the body naturally to strip off these antigens?
11: The enzyme that we have been working on comes from a pathogen. It comes from Streptococcus pneumoniae, which is a causative agent of pneumonia. These enzymes chop off blood group antigens, which are made up of sugar building blocks. And this allows the organism to take up these and use them for its own food source.
1: What you're basically doing is stealing a pathogen's digestive system, and you're going to use it to digest the antigens off of cells to make them more compatible for transfusion. Exactly. So why is the enzyme not good enough? Why can't you just use it as it is?
11: These molecules can be linked onto the cell surface in a number of different ways and it's very good at cleaving off the most predominant linkage by which these molecules, these markers are presented on the cell surface and that job is good enough for the streptococcus pneumoniae but the immune system is very sensitive to these markers and so we need almost complete removal of them.
1: How can you improve on what nature has given you in the form of the enzyme from streptococcus then?
11: To improve on nature we, we take lessons from nature. We actually do a process called directed evolution to engineer this enzyme. We take the gene for the enzyme, and we put it into another system that allows us to produce large quantities of this enzyme, and once we have the gene, we can mutate it, and this gives us a population of different mutants. We select the improved mutants, take the genes of those, and continue the, the process of mutation and selection to get the best mutants.
1: So in a nutshell, you are introducing genetic spelling mistakes into the gene that encodes this enzyme, and then you do trial and error. Do any of those spelling mistakes actually make the enzyme much better at stripping off these antigens? And if some of them do, you take the best-performing gene and then just keep repeating that process until you've got one that's really good? That's right. And does it work?
11: It does. Uh, We've been able to improve the efficiency of this enzyme 170-fold compared to the parent ancestral enzyme for cleaving a specific linkage that the parent enzyme had difficulty cutting.
1: I'm sensing there might be a but coming here. Does that mean that it does one of these antigens quite well, but there are others that you can't yet chop off with this enzyme quite so well?
11: You're right. Our enzyme is good at cleaving some of the linkages by which these antigens are linked to cell surfaces, but not all of them, and we're trying to improve that.
1: Does that mean then that you can do certain blood groups but not others, or are you literally just at the stage where you can remove some of the antigen but not the whole lot, so it's not really ready even for one blood group quite yet?
11: The enzyme can completely remove the B antigen from B blood type individuals, but for the A antigen, it's not quite there yet. The problem is that there are many different ways by which the A antigen can be linked to cell surfaces, and we can only cleave some of these linkages.
1: Have you actually demonstrated, though, that that this blood, were it to be transfused, having been stripped of its antigens using your strategy, would be safe and wouldn't trigger a reaction if I, for instance, put group B blood treated in this way into a group A person?
11: Well, we haven't done the transfusion yet, but... The typical clinical test for antigenicity of blood type B shows that these cells have their B antigens completely removed from them.
1: And how do you actually practically do this? Do you have, what, a pot with some of this enzyme in and you just tip it into the cells and let it work its magic and then wash it off? Is that how it works?
11: Essentially, that's the case. We want to take the donated blood, uh, add a few drops of the enzyme to it, let it sit for a few hours, and then, yes, wash the enzyme away.
1: And... Do the cells tolerate this? Are they harmed in any way?
11: All the tests that we have done don't show any indication that the cells are harmed in any way by this.
1: Well, that's very reassuring. How long do you think it'll be based on the present trajectory before you've got something that you could consider for a clinical trial here?
11: Well, I can only give you an estimate, but I'd say something like 10 to 15 years, perhaps.
1: That was David Kwan. He's from the University of British
2: Columbia. That's exciting news for the future, but with only 4% of eligible donors donating, even with this new technique, we'll still face a blood shortfall. So wouldn't it be fantastic if we could just make blood?
1: Perhaps we can, because with us is David Kent. He's from the Cambridge Stem Cell Institute. His idea is to understand how to harness the bone marrow stem cells that normally produce blood in the body so we can then use them to make tailor-made blood products for each individual. So David, what are these stem
12: cells and how do they work? Blood stem cells are are very rare cells in the adult bone marrow and they're ultimately responsible for uh, the production and destruction of trillions of blood cells every day. So uh, quite potent cells, but as I said, quite rare, so difficult to find in, in adults, But when you can find them and you can manipulate the way they make decisions, then you can start going down and making all of the different mature cell types in a a blood system. So all the red cells and platelets that are so desperately needed in the blood donation clinics. You make it sound very simple. What's the stumbling Uh block? Yeah, so the the big stumbling block is is that there are many, many cell intermediates that these cells have to go through before they come from a stem cell all the way down to a very mature red cell.
1: You mean so they start off as sort of baby cells, then they grow up into adolescent cells and then eventually become young adults and then mature adults and that's when we want them at the mature adult stage but
12: you've got to shepherd them through all those stages. Exactly and understanding teenagers as we all know is very difficult. <laughs> uh, so uh, so trying to figure out what proteins are really directing the fate choices is what our lab really focuses on and, and so we try to understand at a single cell level how individual stem cells are, are making the decision to make a new stem cell or maybe go off and make one of the many Uh, different types of the blood system. Is it just the way the cells talk to each other and how they send
1: messages amongst themselves with first protein signals and so on that's important? Or is the environment physically itself important? Because obviously when we look at the bone marrow, it's a three-dimensional environment. You've got cells touching each other and communicating in three dimensions. A culture dish is often just two. Yeah,
12: absolutely. And there, there are many groups... Uh, sort of attacking this problem from many different ways. But on the the bone marrow itself, uh, there's a specialized area called the bone marrow stem cell niche. And this niche is is this place where all of the bone lining cells and all of the supportive cell types that feed the stem cells are located. And there's been an enormous amount of work on that. Uh, But in a culture dish, you can actually start to create these three-dimensional uh, Microenvironments as well, and, and so there are many groups that have actually started to try and mimic what goes on in a, in a bone marrow microenvironment. If you do that, do you
1: start to get the stem cells to turn into the kinds of cells that we would need to produce? I don't want to say fake blood, but artificially produced personalized blood
12: that would be one of the ultimate goals is to really understand how a single cell makes that entire journey to mature red cells or mature platelets and there are, there are also groups that are trying to do this even with the knowledge that we already have so we don't understand everything completely but trying to give it a, a best push at it there's a, and there's been some some serious progress made but the amounts required in an individual transfusion are, are quite enormous, uh, and scaling this up has, has been the big problem. So it actually requires bioengineers to be thinking about things as well as biologists to really try and understand how we make blood products for everybody from these stem cell populations. I mean, I read somewhere that uh, it's about a million,
1: million cells every day that your bone marrow has to replace, which are continuously just being thrown away because they've got old. So we have to come up with a culture dish capable of the same incredible
12: turnover that that your bone marrow does. Right. So what we'd try to do, I guess, in an ideal world is put in the, the sort of teenager cells. So we wouldn't have to put in that enormous number of cells. We'd put in cells that could create that enormous number of cells over the lifetime of an individual. So similar to how stem cell transplants work uh, when somebody has, has a full bone marrow transplant, the stem cells go in and set up shop as if they were indeed the local resident cells. And so if you could get some sort of intermediate there, I think that would be, would be quite a good way to go. I suppose one problem is that
1: when people come to hospital and they're acutely urgently in need of a blood transfusion there wouldn't be time to do this would there this is something longer term so you would you would presumably need to take from me a sample of my bone marrow in order to start your process and you're going to have to scale that up but in the meantime we're still going to need blood from somewhere
12: right and and so i guess the 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 middle ground solution in that case would be to make Uh, unlimited supplies of of A blood cells, A, B blood cells, O blood cells, etc. And so you can take individual donors, scale those processes up, make the mature cell types, store them all down so you have banks of blood cells that are made in this way but not individually transfused back into the same person. Uh, So you wouldn't have the need to to wait that period of time outside the body. Are we far away? How long do you think before we see on the shelves blood that's tailor-made to an individual? Well, I would say in my own career, the, the rapidity with which science has progressed has, has been incredible, especially in the stem cell field. And so, so I think anything's possible, but we're certainly uh, five to 10 years away from, from seeing anything that's, that's in a patient, I think.
1: Thank you very much. David Kent from the Cambridge Stem Cell Institute.
2: Finally, it's time for Question of the Week. And this week, Ziad Yahia has been looking at this question.
11: The Naked Scientist's Question of the Week, brought to you in association with the How to Wisman Foundation, supporting science and education, from alpha to omega.
4: I was wondering whether you could let me know why the mother doesn't reject a baby because it has a different genetic sequence.
13: A foetus is created from a mixture of its mother's and father's genes, so the baby is genetically unique. So what is it that protects babies from their mum's immune system? I asked Dr Lucy Fairclough, an immunologist at the University of Nottingham, just how this works.
14: The immune system normally functions to remove anything foreign from the body, such as an infection. In the case of pregnancy, the mother's immune system will see the baby as foreign because the baby is genetically made up from the mother and the father. However, in most cases, the mother does not reject the baby. What
13: allows mums to put up with this alien life form inside of her for so long? Well, besides a lot of patients and random food.
14: Well, at the site of the placenta, there is contact between the foetal and maternal tissues. But at the placenta, there is maternal tolerance of the foetal tissue, despite these genetic differences.
13: I think a lot of expectant mothers would definitely say they tolerate a lot during pregnancy. Just how do they do it, Lucy?
14: There are many mechanisms that help to maintain this tolerance. These can include the secretion of special proteins that suppress the mother's immune system or an accumulation of cells that regulate and keep the immune system in check. There can also be lack of other proteins that normally activate the immune system. All of this causes a local suppression of immunity during pregnancy that enables the foetus to survive, even though it is genetically different to the mother.
13: Sounds like mum's got it covered. But no body's perfect, right?
14: There are some instances when the foetus may be attacked by the mother's immune system, although this is now controlled by careful screening. There are many proteins expressed on red blood cells of the body and an individual's blood type is defined by some of these proteins. In the case of pregnancy, when the father's red blood cells express a protein called rhesus D but the mother's does not express this rhesus D protein, the mother generates a molecule called an antibody that targets the fetus's red blood cells. This is called hemolytic disease of the newborn. In most cases, however, the red blood cells do express rhesus D, so this is a fairly rare occurrence.
13: So there you have it. Your mum's got your back even before you're born. Next time we'll be getting to grips with Helen's question.
14: Why are fingerprints unique?
2: If you feel you know the answer, you can get in touch by email, chris at thenakedscientist.com. You can find us on Facebook, you can tweet at Naked Scientist, or you can join in the debate on the forum. That's at thenakedscientist.com slash forum.
1: And that is it for this week. Thank you very much to Heather Douglas for her production skills. Do join us next week as our experts will tackle your science questions. You just have to send them in. Any science question on anything to chris at nakedscientist.com. The Naked Scientist comes to you from Cambridge University. It's supported by the STFC, the EPSRC and Rolls-Royce. I'm Chris Smith and thank you very much for listening. Until next time, goodbye.